Mark 11 is where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. So all the way through Mark's gospel, there's this kind of building anticipation that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And when we get to Mark 11, voila, here he is. He arrives in Jerusalem and he comes into town on the side where all the Galilean Jews would have been camping. All right, so all the, the people that would claim him as one of their own and you know, get a little bit excited about Jesus because he's Jesus of Nazareth, all the Galilean Jews really did get excited. When they heard he was coming, they, they really kind of went to town, or he went to town, but they went crazy. So they got all excited. They're waving their you know, palms around, putting them down on the ground in front of him. And, and down in verse 9, they're, they're shouting... Hosanna, which means save us or save us now, Lord. It's kind of a a cry to to God. Save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So it's kind of a glorious moment. Here, Here comes Jesus and the crowd is going absolutely crazy. He's super, super popular, at least among these people. And as he's arriving, they're saying, this is it, kingdom time. In their mind, it's really obvious what should happen. He should go into Jerusalem. He should go right to the Roman garrison and he should kick them out. Right? Just get rid of them. Who needs the Romans anyway? This was pre-Italian TV. So let's just get rid of them. Let's just get the Romans out of here. Let's establish a kingdom and let's let Jesus climb onto the throne and we are happy. Happy days are ahead. Now, we know that that's not what happened. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the Sunday and the following week changed all of human history, but it wasn't the way they expected it to be. In fact, it wasn't just that it didn't quite turn out the way Jesus might have expected it to go. It actually turned out exactly the way Jesus knew it was going to go, but it was the people that didn't have the right expectation. They wanted king and kingdom and power and they wanted it now, Jesus, the king, was coming to lay down his power and to demonstrate and to achieve something that would change everything. So let's go back and let's see the predictions that Jesus gave. Because in Mark's gospel, there are at least three occasions where Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going for a purpose. And they kind of don't get it. All right, so let's go back and see that. First of all, in chapter 8, there's one in 8, there's one in 9, and there's one in 10. So in chapter 8, we've seen this one already. As soon as Peter said in verse 29, you are the Christ, then Jesus, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You think, okay, well, there it is, obvious. And then Peter took him aside and started to correct him, started to rebuke him, started to say, no, Jesus, <laughs> you're getting a little bit carried away because here's how it works. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the king. Here's how it plays out. And Jesus' response to Peter is so strong. Get behind me, Satan. With follow-up comment, which is really important. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, one minute was kind of on top of his game. Next minute, he absolutely blew it. But before we give Peter a hard time, let's remember that we can do that too, can't we? 
We can go from our A game to an absolute nightmare very, very quickly. Peter had the things of man in mind, not the things of God. Chapter 9, next chapter. And then, uh, remember, we, we talked about this last week. Three of them, Peter, James, John, went up on the mountain, and they got the glimpse. Like the, the curtain got pulled back. They got a glimpse of the reality that we normally can't see, of who Jesus really is, that he's the center of everything. And then they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's this man with his son, and the son's got a demon, and the demon throws him into the fire, and he's foaming at the mouth, and it's utter chaos, and all the disciples are like, oh, it's not working, and all the crowds are going crazy, and the man's pulling his hair out, and just the whole thing is chaotic. And remember, Jesus heals the man's son, and it's a beautiful picture on the one hand of just the flimsy, fragile faith of that man. If, if you can, Jesus, if you can. And Jesus accepted the weakest, doubt-ridden faith, which most of us are very capable of bringing. But at the same time, we noticed that probably three of them had a pretty confident faith. They'd just been with Jesus on the mountain. Watch this, he can handle it. Well, at the end of that, and the end of the reading last week, Jesus continued to predict his death. Down in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Oops, that's awkward. You can sort of imagine the conversation, can't you? Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be king. It's going to happen, guys. Yeah, well, I'm I'm his favorite. What do you mean you're his favorite? I'm his favorite. No, no, I'm his favorite. I mean, he clearly trusts me more than you. What do you mean? Well, he took me up on the mountain. Well, you and, you know, James and John. Yeah, but, but he took us, not you. And he took them because of their brother. I was the only one. He didn't take my brother. He took me on my own. So, you know, imagine them going back and forth. What's so special about the mountain anyway? Can't even say. Not allowed to tell you. I'm I'm guessing and maybe I'll have to apologize to them, but I'm pretty sure that's probably what they were saying, right? And they've gone from this uber confident faith that, that maybe was showing when the boy was there. And now they're showing off and they're pretending, you know, <laughs> it's all a competition. How easily competitiveness creeps in, doesn't it? When you think about that idea of thinking the thoughts of men rather than the thoughts of God, two ways that we do that came to mind for me. Because like I said, I don't want to just give the 12 disciples a hard time and sit here all smug as if we don't struggle. There's two things that come to mind. One is the obvious, and that's competition. How easy, how easy is it for us to fall into a competitive attitude? Well, God's going to bless this church, not that church. Surely God's not going to do things there because, you know, what's happening here versus there and this church and that church. And and even between us, like, well, my spiritual gifts are better than so-and-so's spiritual gifts. And it also works the other way around, too. Well, that person's spiritual gifts are better than my spiritual gifts. See, we can do it kind of the show-off way or the beat-yourself-up way, but when we start kind of competing with one another and elevating one person over another, before we know it, we're walking around like the disciples. Only our version isn't recorded for every church to mock for 2,000 years. But actually, it could be, couldn't it? How easy it is 
to start competing and comparing favorably or unfavorably towards ourselves. That's thinking in the world's way. It's not thinking in God's way. Here's another way that we think in the world's way and not in God's way. It's when we think, I know how things should go. And I know what God should do. And so when things don't go the way that I know they should go, and when God doesn't do the things I know God should do, well, then I worry. I get stressed. I start to panic. I start to fear. Anyone struggle with that? There's all sorts of reasons why we worry, but one of the reasons is because we're thinking on a human level instead of on God's level. We're thinking that God needs our perspective and God needs to see things our way because if only God could see things through my glasses, he would know that this is what should happen and this is what he should do. (laughs) But obviously he doesn't know as much as me. And uh, and instead of the arrogance that I sound like, we kind of just show it in our worry and in our anxiety instead of saying, actually, you know what? God's been running this universe for thousands of years, maybe longer, and and he doesn't seem to make a whole lot of mistakes, so maybe, maybe he knows what he's doing with this person or with this family member or with this situation. So easy, isn't it, to start thinking human thoughts instead of God thoughts and then to start imposing those on God, just like the disciples did, just like Peter did. Well, then we come to chapter 10, and so let's look at that. Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Let's pause there. That's a bit weird. So they're walking to Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus is marching ahead. I think that's why they were amazed. They may not have understood all of these predictions, but I think they knew that, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. It's going to be pretty tense. It's, going to be a, it's not going to be a pretty scene in Jerusalem. You know, that, that things have been bubbling and kind of coming to the surface for the last two, three years. It, this, is going to, this isn't going to go well. And Jesus is just, whew, he's marching ahead, kind of like my dad used to when we went on holidays. You know, the way I would do a modern art gallery. Whew, watch me. I'd be done in five minutes. Jesus was going to a conclusion. He was heading to Jerusalem and they were amazed. They're like, whoa, he's not holding back. In fact, those who were following were actually afraid because it's like, well, this doesn't, this, this is weird. Why, why, why is he doing that? And so, end of verse 32, taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, and they, the Romans, will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Couldn't be much plainer, could he? He's going to be handed over. These people that have been trying to arrest him constantly, he's going to be handed over to them. They're going to get him and they're going to condemn him and and they're going to say he needs to die and then they're going to hand him over to the Romans and the Romans, we're told four things. They're going to mock him and they're going to spit on him and they're going to flog him and they're going to kill him. Jesus is making this as plain as he possibly can for his followers, his disciples to get. The mocking, the spitting, the flogging, the killing. 
Notice the next word in the text. Verse 35. And. No, no kind of three days later. No new scene. Just and. Immediately. Then. Next thing. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, uh, we want you to do for us uh, whatever we ask of you. Um, guys, I, did you hear what I said? Hand it over, mock, spit upon, flog, kill. Did, were you listening to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, would you do us a favor? Would you do, a, would you do us a solid? Would you do something for us, please? They've got Jesus to one side, and they're just asking him if, I mean, what's the harm in that? You ever feel like someone's not listening? You know, when you kind of pour your heart out to somebody, or maybe a child, and you just kind of, you know, you just lay it all on the line, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. This is the, this is the moment we've been praying for with this little one. And, uh, you know, they've asked a question, and you just give them the ultimate theological answer, and you get to the end and you look at them all expectant. And what do they say? What, what's for breakfast? You go, oh, are you serious? Like totally weren't listening. Like totally missed it. And so that's what's going on here. The disciples, James and John, have pulled Jesus to one side. And they're saying, hey, Jesus, can you, can you do us a favor? We want you to do something for us. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it would be nice if what they said next was, okay, Jesus, you've just said about the whole mocking uh, spitting, flogging, killing. Like, that sounds horrific. I mean, really scary. And we're your followers, and we're going with you, and we just want you to give us a little bit more instruction on what we should do. Maybe, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen? We're afraid, Jesus. Would you, would you kind of, you know, build up our courage so that we can follow you faithfully to the finish line, whatever it costs? Jesus, uh, hey, we've got a question. Is there anything we can do to help? You know, is there... Sadly, that's not what they ask. What they ask is, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Oh dear. Now, I said we're not going to give them a hard time, right? So maybe that's what we might ask too. Maybe it's easy to say, okay, well, I don't really get this whole cross thing. So let's just bypass that and let's go to the next bit. Because you're going to be king and we want to be with you. Right? We want to be, hey, this is James and John, right? So we were on the mountain and Elijah and Moses, like the Old Testament superheroes, that was so cool to see them again, or first time for them. You know, they were there, but you know, that's done. The Old Testament, like that's finished now, and, and maybe there's going to be a New Testament, and maybe we can be like them, yeah? Maybe we can be the, the right hand, left hand. doesn't matter. We'll go either way. We're really flexible, Jesus, just here to serve. That's kind of what they're asking. When, when the power comes, when the impressive moment arrives, <clears throat> here's my CV. You're going to be glad you chose me, Jesus. I'm going to be great. I'm going to do a good job. Put me in charge of cities. Put me in charge of, put me in charge of football. I mean, that UEFA is a nightmare. I'll take over. You know, put me in charge of food distribution. I don't really care. I'm happy to serve. Just put me next to you because I kind of want to be in your in your limelight, I just, you know? And somehow, in their minds, that made sense. And so Jesus' response to them is incredibly patient, 
Okay, as you would probably expect. Jesus said to them, um, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, that has got to be one of the most complicated little minutes in the, in the gospel of Mark. It always, honestly, I'll just be honest with you. Every time I read that, it feels like Jesus asks them a question where he's expecting them to say no. And then they say yes. And he's like, well, anyway, and then he moves on. Just being candid, like, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Yes. Okay, well, anyway, yeah, maybe. But <laughs> I don't think actually that's what happens here. I think what Jesus is saying to them is, is this, something like this. Like, guys, okay. The cup, the cup that I'm going to drink, the cup that the Old Testament anticipated, the cup of wrath that I'm going to drink down to the dregs, are you able to drink that? Like, I'm going to suffer. Are you able to suffer with me? Uh, And the baptism, he's not talking about water. He's talking about being immersed into his suffering, into into the darkness of what's about to happen. Like, guys, the cup and the baptism, the, the, the cross, the suffering, the darkness, everything that I'm about to be just dunked in fully. Are you able to do that? And they say, yeah, we're able. He's like, right, let's focus on that, shall we? You're right. That's what this is about. Right now, it's first things first. And yeah, the whole kingdom thing, he doesn't dismiss it, but he says, that's not what you should be stressing about right now. That's up to God to figure that out. Right now, Jerusalem is looming large. Don't get carried away with positions of power right now. It's the cruelty of the cross. That's where we're headed. And I want you to get your hearts and your minds and your gaze fixed on what comes next. Please, guys, can you do that? Uh, maybe they got it. Maybe, maybe not. Well, next verse we read, verse 41. When the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Probably not because James and John had totally made a mistake and, you know, misread the situation. How could you be so insensitive? You two, sons of thunder, talk about, you know, feet of lead. You just stamp all over everything. Didn't you hear Jesus share his heart with us about the flogging and the kids? I don't think that's what the 10 were saying. I think what the 10 were saying was, you said what? I was going to say that. How did you get to him first? I'd already got an appointment with him for 20 minutes when we're walking down the road at the rest stop. I was going to pull him aside. I can't believe you did it first. And so all 12 of them are wanting the same thing. That's my take. Not certain, but I, I suspect I'm right on that one, just knowing them as we do. All 10 were indignant with the two because of what they'd said to Jesus. And so Jesus knows that there's 12 people here that need a little bit more instruction. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know that, right, guys? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we know that. If you're in charge, you lord it over. Isn't that cool? That's what we're talking about, Jesus. 
If you're, if you're in authority, then you kind of abuse that authority. That's essentially what he's saying. It's the way the world works, isn't it? And they're going, yeah, it is. I mean, think about the Romans. It works in the military all the way through. If you're in charge, then the, the, the sub-soldiers are your servants, you know? And, and if you're a soldier, then the people, they really are your servants because they'll do what you tell them. They put a sword in their face, they do anything. And if you're in charge of that, then the, 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 the senior soldiers serve you. And if you're the Caesar, whew, that's power, right? Whatever the Caesar wants, like everybody is bowing and scraping to him. That's a cool position. But Jesus, you're going to be higher than that. Well, I want to be next to you, you know? It's the way it works. It's the way it works politically. It's the way it works in the workplace. It's the way it works everywhere. If you're in charge, then everybody serves you true today, isn't it? If you're in charge, everyone serves you. If you're in charge politically, it seems like, and I don't want to get political here, but it seems like the politicians sometimes forget that maybe they're supposed to be representing us and what we've said, however you view that, and they kind of do what they want, right? If you look down past the, you know, the history in our country over the past 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, as far as my mind can go. It seems like every party that gets into power ultimately loses their power because people get tired of them serving themselves, right? Works both ways. Works in the workplace. You ever had a boss that thinks you're their slave? Whatever they want, you've got to do it. It must be so nice to be the boss, <laughs> to be in charge, to be able to issue commands. And what about the home? What happens in, in the home? If you're in charge in the home, you come home from a hard day's work, right? You walk through the door and the children gather around and they go, Daddy, Daddy, welcome home. Here's a plate of cookies that we've made just for you. And as you're eating the cookies, your wife appears and, and she just all smiles and she says, let me give you a hug. Come here, dear. I've, I've run a warm bath for you. And you go, oh, you shouldn't have. And you climb into the bath, you know, and you're sat there like thinking, oh, this is the life. And then you get out with a nice warmed towel that's been warmed for several hours in anticipation of your arrival because you're in charge and people serve you, right? So, so then you come downstairs. And they say, no, 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 don't go in the kitchen. Dinner's not quite ready. Go into the front room. Put your feet up. Here's a newspaper. Let me know if you want me to turn the page. And here's the remote control for the television. We want you to have it, Dad. Because you deserve it. And so you sit there and then, you know, you come to the table to eat and the kids, it's okay. You know, they've got pot noodles. We couldn't afford to heat the water because you're having filet mignon. But, but it's okay. They've got cold, crunchy pot noodles. But it's okay because you're the boss. That's how it works, right? In the home. Probably not, you're thinking. Not in, in your home, not in mine. But, but is there a part of you that kind of thinks it should? You ever have that feeling like you've come home and you've, you've worked and you think, I deserve better than this. And it works the other way too, right? Maybe you've been home all day with the kids and your husband comes home and he's worked, kind of, and you've been working really and it's like he should be serving you. And it's so natural, isn't it, for us as humans to think, I deserve to be served. I've worked for this, given birth to these people. I deserve to be served. And Jesus says, um, that's how it works. In the world of the Gentiles, in the world of this world, if you're in charge, then everybody's there to serve you. 
They're there to bow before you. They're there to make your life comfortable, to make your life better, to take their resources and to lay them at your feet. And then Jesus says, next verse, but it shall not be so among you. Ah. Not so among you. If you're followers of Jesus, then it's different for you. He goes on, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be the slave. It's the complete opposite, isn't it? It's to take the way the world so obviously works in every arena and to turn it upside down. The world still works the same way Jesus described, the same thing that the disciples nodded and affirmed and assumed was true for them. It's still the same world today. In the workplace, the boss still thinks that they're the boss and therefore you're there to give your resources for them. In the home, maybe you grew up in a home where a dad was a little bit more like that than he should have been. And maybe alcohol was mixed in or, or just absence was mixed in or something was mixed in and it just turned from a kind of slightly humorous description to something that was painfully ugly and you suffered under that. Maybe you've suffered in the workplace or in the home. Maybe you've suffered even in the church because churches can be very good at, at kind of putting Christian labels on very worldly habits and patterns. Power can be abused in a church just like power can be abused in the workplace. Jesus says, no, not so among you. If you're my followers, then it's different. If you're going to be great, then you must be servant. If you're going to be first, then, then, then you're to be a slave. What does that mean? It means that when you go to work, if you, if you are in charge of the company or if you have one person that works for you, it doesn't really matter. When you go to work as a follower of Jesus, you go in thinking, right, how can I take all that I have, my time, my resources, my energy, and offer those things for the good of those underneath me? How can I sacrifice myself for their sake? That's what's expected of followers of Jesus in the workplace. Imagine Imagine the impact an army of Christians could have going into the workplace on a Monday and saying, I am here to serve. Not just to the bosses who are going to give the pay rises, but to the people below us, the people who report to us, the people who answer to us. Imagine if we went to them and said, I, I, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. I'm everything that is here. Every, I'm going to just throw my full weight behind helping you to thrive. Imagine that in the church. Imagine having a leader. I just mean, don't just mean elders, although Andy keep listening, this applies to us, but, but to all of us, if you have any leadership role in the church, in a life group, in a kids club, in different ministry, if you're in charge of refreshments, whatever, any leadership role, imagine what the church is like when the leaders say, I'm here to serve. Everything that I have, all my resources, all my time, all my energy is for you. That's going to be a healthy church, isn't it? I praise God that we see that and get a sniff and a taste of that. Imagine home life. Imagine having a dad or a mom or a husband, whatever, uh, somebody who has authority in the home coming into the home and saying, you know what? 
Everything that God has given to me, all of my time and energy, my resources, uh, all of the strength, all that I have, it's here for the sake of those under my care. I'm going to serve. Yeah, work was tough. Don't worry about it. I'm here to serve. That makes a beautiful home. Makes a, a wonderfully upside down, different from this world kind of a home, doesn't it? This applies politically. If any of you ever get into parliament, listen to the message. It applies there too. This applies in the workplace. This applies in the church. This applies in the home. If we are in leadership, if we're going to do it Jesus's way, then Jesus's way is to take everything that we've got and to offer it for the sake of those who are under us. How do I know that's Jesus's way? Because of what he says next, verse 45. He says, even the son of man, that's him, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that amazing? If you think about it, God sat on his throne with the entire cosmos before him, underneath him, and the world and all the little people in the world, all the subjects. God could have so easily said, well, I'm in charge. They are there for me. In fact, that's what every other religion says, right? That humans are here for the ultimate God, whoever that is, whatever presentation they give. Basically, if you're going to be in any other religion, you better be ready to be a subject of the God. But What about the true God? The true God surveys creation. He surveys the subjects who technically he could absolutely be within his rights to just demand all worship and all subservience and and that we just fall into line and behave and do exactly what he wants for his glory. But instead, what does he do? He says, okay, here is everything that I am, everything that I have, all of my resources, all of my life, and I lay it down. I come not to be served, but to serve. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done first. We have to go into work. We have to go home. We have to you know, live our lives. And it's a big ask. But Jesus is saying, hey, guys, watch. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. To take all of his time and all of his energy and all of his resources, everything that he had, He came and he handed it over for us. That's a leader, isn't it? Isn't that a leader you want to follow? Someone who's ready to do that. He came as a servant to serve us and to give his life as a ransom. The word ransom means a payment, right? To give his life to pay. And, and I suppose that kind of feels a little bit awkward to us because, you know, like ransom, that's kidnapping. Like, well, kind of. Here we are, the, the, this created world that ha, has been created by God, and yet we've been captured and wrapped up by sin, and we're pulled away from him, and we're separated. And there's a penalty that comes with that. And Jesus has come to pay the penalty, to pay the price. The next word he says is, as a ransom for many. The word for there is the word for in place of or substitute. Jesus came to pay the ransom, to pay the penalty as our substitute. 
You know how substitutions work in football, right? You're watching the game, players playing badly. Okay, hold the number up. You come off. You go on. This guy is going to take your place. And the only bad thing about it is that you can only do three when ten of them need to come off sometimes, right? So it's a substitute. This person comes on in your place. Jesus said, I've come as a substitute. Not just to to serve in, in some small way, not just to kind of be humble for a season. I've come to give everything, to lay down my life, to pay the penalty for everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've dreamed of doing or wished you'd said, all of your sins, past, present, future, that from the tiniest to the biggest, I've come to pay a ransom. And the ransom is going to cost me my life but it's worth it. He's come to pay a ransom as our substitute. A ransom for many. That's a leader that we can follow. That's a savior that we can trust. That's a God that we can worship. And so, yeah, by all means, take this message back into your week and apply it in those various spheres. Nationally, if you suddenly you know, become mayor of something, but, but in the workplace, in the home, in the church. But, but before any of that, before we get carried away and get excited to go home and try to do our evening differently, before we do that, let's come to the foot of the cross and see the ultimate leader as he lays down his life for us. Let's bow before him and look at him and think about all that he has given because he loved us. People like Peter and James and John and you and me. People who get it wrong, people who mess it up, people who put their foot in it, people who misunderstand, people who don't catch on, people who sin. People like you and me, Jesus says, you know what? Come to give my life as a ransom for you. So let's just take a moment just to to bow, and not just at the end of the message, but at the end of the series. And let's just pause before our God and just reflect, just think. Not about where you're going or what you're going to do, but where he came from and what he did. And maybe that will stir within your heart and within mine a response of worship, a response of of, of trust, a response of faith, a, a response of gratitude. Whatever it stirs, let us just bow before him and ponder what he's done for us.